Welcome to Peak Mind. I'm your host, Michael Trainer, and today's epic episode is with Colin O'Brady. Colin just became the first person to walk alone and unassisted across Antarctica. He also climbed all of the tallest peaks in the world, as well as the North and South Pole, faster than anyone else has before. And in this episode, we go into basically how to establish goals and tackle those goals that may seem impossible in a way that is achievable. We go into a variety of different mindset hacks, how Colin approaches challenges, what his tools are in moments where he feels like he wants to give up. It's an absolutely chuck full episode with information I think that will really benefit you in your life as you take on goals that seem at times insurmountable. I want to thank this community because your feedback and reviews have been profoundly helpful. You'll notice in this episode, I have upgraded the audio quality and you have my commitment that we're going to get top, top audio from here on out. Thank you for the wonderful feedback. And uh, today's review of the week uh, is from Nate Cormer. Nate left a five-star review and he said, you'll be happier and healthier in mind, body, and soul by incorporating a few of these ideas into your daily practices. Keep it up, MT. Update, loved all the books of recent MT guests, Holiday, Jarvis, and Ryan. Um, Chase Jarvis, that is Ryan Holiday, and uh, Chris Ryan. Epic guests, epic episodes, and uh, thank you so much, Nate Cormer. Um, Please go ahead and leave us a five-star review if you enjoy these episodes because it's what helps us grow this community and extend the reach of the podcast. I'm always eternally grateful. Thank you so much. I also want to shout out two of my preferred companies that I think you'll really enjoy that are sponsors for this episode. The first is Lifecycle. Lifecycle is my go-to brand for high-quality mushroom tonics. I use their Rishi, their Cordyceps, their Lion's Mane. The Lion's Mane, I've found, has been extraordinarily helpful for my sleep. I've noticed since I've been taking it that my dreams are way more lucid. And I have had very deep REM sleep. Um, Highly recommend checking them out. Uh, They have a lot of the research on the benefits of mushrooms. Mushrooms have been used for thousands of years in various uh, medical traditions and are now having a bit of a resurgence. And they use super high quality um, organic uh, grade mushrooms grown in the U.S. They have an incredible integrity to the product and they're one of my favorite new discoveries. And I've been loving, loving, loving the mushrooms since I've started incorporating them into my life. It's now part of my uh, non-negotiable daily practices. So check them out. It's lifecycle, L-I-F-E-C-Y-K-E-L.com. Again, that's lifecycle.com. And if you put in Peak Mind 20 at checkout, you'll get 20% off your order. This week's episode is also brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a meat subscription company that distributes very high-quality meat you can trust. 100% grass-fed and pasture-raised beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage-bred pork, and wild-caught Alaskan salmon delivered directly to your door. I really like, if you're going to be a meat eater, I I think it's super important that you get hormone-free 
uh, antibiotic-free, high-quality, humanely raised meat. And ButcherBox is my go-to source for getting those uh, those meats that I need and incorporate into my diet. I'm O negative and uh, saw a holistic health practitioner and she recommended uh, incorporating uh, a bit of meat in my diet. I was vegetarian for about 14 years and I said I would do so, but only with, um, you know, super high quality, hormone free, antibiotic free sources. And so ButcherBox has been my go-to source. You can get a nice discount. They're always running um, uh, incredible promotions. So depending on when you're listening to this, I definitely recommend going and checking them out. It's ButcherBox.com, B-U-T-C-H-E-R-B-O-X.com. And if you put in Peak Mind at checkout, you'll get a nice discount and promotion on your first order. So again, check them out, ButcherBox.com. And with that, it is my great pleasure to introduce the one and only Colin O'Brady. All right, I'm here with my friend Colin O'Brady. Colin, it's a pleasure. It's great to hear see you, be back on the podcast. So nice to see you. Yes, Colin is my first repeat guest, and uh, it's an absolute honor. You just, one, launched a book, two, did an impossible row, uh, and three, since I last saw you, uh, walked solo unassisted across Antarctica. So <laughs> you haven't been up to too much. I've been wet and cold and alone and all the things since I last saw you. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I want to. I want to kind of get into that. So, um, so I'd love to start just because we haven't we haven't spoken about it in the past. Love to uh, start with hearing a little bit, just because I've been personally fascinated, and I know people listening would would be riveted by your story. Um, with what led you to Antarctica, and and sort of delving a bit into that journey of what it was like to walk. Uh, which I can't even, frankly, fathom solo (laughs) across the continent. No, so, um, yeah, so last year, uh, 2018, I attempted and was successful becoming the first person to cross Antarctica solo, uh, unsupported and unassisted, which means, you know, no resupplies of food or fuel or gear or no use of, like, kites or dogs, just kind of mano-a-mano, nearly a 1,000 miles uh, across Antarctica via the South Pole. But, um, you know, kind of what brought me there is last time I was on the podcast, you know, I talked about a world record project that I did, um, you know, climbing the seven summits and Explorers Grand Slam, so climbing mountains, so faster than anyone has ever done that, um, some other world record projects that I had done, and kind I'm of... I'm just going to pause for a second, yeah. because you talk about it so casually. So for those who are listening, Colin literally climbed the tallest mountain on every continent, and if I'm not mistaken, uh, the, it was the, the North, North Pole, Pole South Pole, yeah. and South Pole. Faster than anyone's ever done it, inclusive of which was going from Everest and his partner literally letting him know that if he climbed, I think you said, right, it was Denali, right, in something like like three days, (laughs) (laughs) he would hit two world records. So he literally climbed down from Everest, I don't even know how you did it, and then wound up over Denali and accomplished his record. So you you can go back and listen to the previous podcast for that story, which was freaking epic. But anyway, (laughs) keep keep going. So obviously, you know, that was uh, an amazing project and really was... uh, 
um, you know, something I was super proud of, certainly from, you know, where I went to, uh, you know, before that, obviously we talked about in the last podcast, but, you know, being severely burned in the fire, being told I would never walk again 12 years ago, kind of that to accomplish that world record. But I was kind of looking for, you know, my next personal challenge, you know, personally really passionate about kind of pushing the edges of human potential and performance, um, as well as sharing those stories with the world in a way that inspires other people to, um, you know, kind of get outside and, you know, set audacious goals in their own life. And so I was doing a lot of, um, you know, public speaking and things like that after the Explorers Grand Slam project that you just talked about. And one of the questions that I started asking um, people, I start asking people, young people, particularly with my nonprofit, but also in my kind of corporate speaking engagement, like, you know, what's your Everest? This metaphor, you know, pretty obvious metaphor, of like, what's your massive big goal? I wanted to climb on Everest. I wanted to set this goal for myself, but what's your Everest? And I got all these amazing responses from people, you know, kids being, you know, I want to be the first person in my family to graduate from college or, you know, people in a business, you know, context being like, you know what? Like, I've always said I was going to do this thing. I'm going to stop putting it off and I'm going to go for it or I'm going to finally start the business that I always said, you know, whatever that is, it doesn't matter. But I realized I'm this guy asking that question. But at the time I was, you know, about 30, you know, 34 years old now. So I was 31 maybe at the time, I'm like asking people this question. I'm going like, well, just because I've climbed Mount Everest doesn't mean I'm just going to kick my feet up and do nothing for the rest <laughs> of my life. Like I need to start asking my own self this question, you know, what's my next Everest? And so, you know, I, you know, my passion is, you know, pushing myself in endurance sports and totally, like I said, the Everest question isn't about anyone like, what's your next big massive endurance goal? I get that's not for everyone, um, but it is for me. And so I thought, you know, I've set these world records, kind of speed records, but the next interesting thing to me would be to try to attempt to do something that no one in history had ever done before. So not just a world record, but actually a world first. Um, and this solo crossing of Antarctica kind of has a long storied history behind it. If, you know, people going back, you know, you know, all the way to kind of Ernest Shackleton a hundred years ago was attempting to cross the continent, uh, not solo, but kind of make a full crossing after reaching the South Pole. And in the sort of modern era, there's been several attempts on the solo crossing that have unsuccessful. Um, fortunately, someone, you know, died just a hundred miles um, from finishing the solo crossing. Another guy, you know, ran out of food and had to be, um, you know, had to abort his project. And I thought, you know, I want to try this project. And I called the project, which also happens to be the name of my book that I just published this week, The Impossible First. And the reason that I called the project The Impossible First um, is not because I was like cocky as in like, oh, I'm going to call it The Impossible First because I think I can totally like do it. It was actually saying like, this project might be impossible. There have been a ton written about it, particularly after the fatality. Like, look, I don't think like the math equation works. Without being able to resupply your food, your sled is too heavy to pull without getting resupplied. My sled was going to start at about 375 wow. pounds. Um, and so I thought to myself, I'm going to call it the impossible first because like it straight up might not be impossible. But I found and what I kind of like to share with others is like when we step outside of our comfort zone, I believe that's where we grow. So success or failure, I wanted to try something that seemed so on the edge of possible or impossible and see if see if I could do it. And I figured, you know what? Everyone's so afraid of failing. You know, there's always like pervasive like I shouldn't try this because what if I fail? It's like I actually might fail. And there were so many times during the journey where I was like, oh, this is it's over now like this. I tried, you know, um, but fortunately I was able to to be successful. But anyways, long-winded answer, but that's kind of what brought me to it. Kind of asking myself, what's my next Everest? And then really sinking into this project. And it's certainly of note, we can talk more about it because it's very important to me, but it's not just me doing this by myself. You know, my wife, Jenna, has dreamed up these projects with me, has built them, has created them um, with me. And so this book and this story and everything, even though it's me solo walking out there, it's really our story, of our love story, the ups and downs, you know, the, the challenges over common face, the people that have doubted us, the people that have supported us, 
us. Um, it's not just kind of this solo epic, this is me walking across Antarctica, because that would be pretty boring. <laughs> no, I agree. Well, I agree. Well, you and I met originally in Israel, and I remember you telling me about Jenna, and I was just like, to be honest, it was, to me, it's been, wow, what a beautiful, like, to find a partnership wherein you each support each other in realizing your dreams and achieving these impossible firsts and to delve deeper into that relating through those uh, missions that you just mentioned to me. Uh, is that is that public, what you guys are going to do together? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah okay. exactly. That you guys are going to climb Everest together. Um, to be honest, as I've sort of been looking for my partner, that's been one of the things I've thought about. I'm yeah. like, man, Colin, Colin really found someone where I – because I feel like, you know, a friend of mine once said – it's no coincidence there are no single presidents. Mm. You know, you look at a president and you're like, oh, okay, look at that. But but all of them are made better um, through their partners. Oh, uh, 100%. And and like, so. I mean, it's definitely been true in my life. And Jenna has been such a blessing. We were fortunate to meet, you know, 13 years ago when we were, you know, she was 20 years old. I was 22, so pretty young and have kind of grown up together through our 20s. And, you know, just like any relationship, of course, uh, you know, we've had our ups and downs in our moments, but more than anything, it's been, you know, being able to grow together and to learn together and to create together. Um, you know, when we started first dreaming of these world record projects, and I read about this in the book, this concept we call whiteboard into reality. Like, we're sitting in a one-bedroom apartment, no money, no background, no, you know, no no idea how to pull this stuff off. We needed to raise, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to do this. We wanted to start a nonprofit. We had big dreams of impacting young people and, you know, all these things. And all we had was like a laptop, a whiteboard on the wall with like our idea, like here's our idea. And in that moment, it's so easy to have your mind flooded with doubt and be like, you know what? That's a cool idea. It's fun to like talk about in a brainstorm or something, but like, how are we actually going to do that? That's like where creativity and innovation often dies. Even if you have a great idea. It's like, but how are we actually going to do that? And that negative self-talk stuff. Oh, that's not for us. That's for somebody else. But instead, you know, having the incredible partner in, in Jenna and both of us kind of being able to build off each other's enthusiasm and energy. And we write about this in the book. It's like, we spent two years like knocking on people's doors, asking any for an advice. Like, oh, do you know this guy? Or can you introduce us here? Or, like, what's your advice on this or whatever? And, and, you know, two years later, we, we raised the money we needed. We started our nonprofit. And as that's built and grown over time, you know, our last, you know, our first project, we're Googling, what's the difference between marketing and PR? Like, we knew nothing. And the last project had, you know, 2 billion media impressions and um, was able to, you know, spread the story widely. And we had 600,000 students following along through our nonprofit efforts. And, you know, that didn't happen overnight, but it happened because of writing it down, putting it on this whiteboard, and then actually every single day waking up with the commitment, you know, sacrificing so much, you know, for our dreams. And there's no way I could have done that alone. There's the only way that's possible is by having such an extraordinary, savvy, cunning, um, wise, loving partner in Jenna. Yeah. I love that you just sort of distilled that down in, in terms of taking it back to the beginning, because I think many people listening to your point earlier around how, what's your Everest, right? Is, you know, you went from whiteboard now, it's obviously incredible accomplishments, but so much of that, at least one of, one of the core principles, which is what I'm going to ask you is in terms of what, what are your core principles for sort of breaking these huge goals down into manageable bits. But I know, and I believe we talked about this last time we spoke, you know, one of the things that's been key for me, like when we decided to do Global Citizen and it was nine months away, it was like segmenting, you know, like what's the, what's the small thing we need to crush or the biggest rock we need to crush today and then literally focusing on that like 10 feet ahead of you, so to speak, but are there any core principles that you can share for those listening? And obviously, we'll delve, we'll delve into the actual expedition, but 
that when, once you had the idea, like once you're like, oh, okay, whiteboard, bang, how do you think about breaking that down into manageable parts such that you can achieve that goal? So it's a... Uh there's there's so many, but there's actually one story that comes to mind that's actually will bring us to the expedition, but to me is actually exemplifies exactly what you're talking about. So obviously when sometimes when you set a massive goal, like you said, it's a global citizen, right? There's gonna be all these people and this event and all these different, you know, talent coming and it's like permits and like it just gets like just like all massive. these things just like yeah. it just like starts like spilling like, oh my god, how are we ever gonna pull this up? It's the same thing, you know, you stand at the base of Mount Everest. I dream about climbing that mountain my entire life. You know, you get there to the Himalayas, you look up and you're like, Holy shit, that's the biggest thing I've ever you know, like how are you gonna possibly walk up there? And you start taking, you know, one step at a time, um, and you eventually get to the top. But when I, uh, you know, Jen and I planned this impossible first, this world, you know, the solo crossing Antarctica project for, you know, well over a year and in the details and all this kind of stuff. And finally, it's time for me to embark on the expedition. And I, you know, get flown and dropped off on the edge of uh, Antarctica. The plane takes off, you know, a 375 pound sled, you know, I've double, triple, quadruple checked my gear and all this kind of stuff. And the plane takes off and I'm out there completely alone. You know, it's minus 30 degrees outside, minus 25, minus 30 degrees. I'm alone for the first time and I've got nearly a thousand miles of you know frozen tundra ahead of me and now it hits me like whoa I'm really alone it's no longer an abstraction I've done it you know I just did a big interview with the New York Times I announced it to the world like this is happening I strap uh the harness of my sled on uh and I start pulling my sled and like 20 seconds maybe or maybe a minute into this I was like holy shit, I don't <laughs> think I can pull my sled. Like, wow. I actually don't think I can pull my sled. Like, forget about, a, you know, 932 miles or whatever it is. Like, I don't know if I can go a mile. And so I'm like, oh, my God, I thought I trained properly, but the snow is deeper than I expected. Like, all of a sudden, just, like, the whole, like, the planning of the whole thing, like, none of it matters. Like, I can't even make any progress. And so I'm, like, starting to pull my sled, and I'm dragging it. And actually, one of the chapters of my book is called Frozen Tears because what happens, I started crying. What happens when you start crying and it's minus 25 degrees outside? <laughs> the tears, they freeze to your face, which is just, like, the all-time most pathetic feeling ever. <laughs> so... This gets back to the question you asked because I was like, what am I going to do? Like, I feel like an absolute failure. Like, I'm going to fail in, like, the first hour of this project. I thought, like I said, I thought it might be impossible. I thought I might fail somewhere along the line. But when I imagined the possibility of failing, I imagined 30, 40, 50 days into this crossing and running out of food or getting injured or something like that. But I'm like, hour one, day one. So I pick up my satellite phone, and I call home to Jenna, like, the only thing I can think to do. And she, she's just um, landed back in Portland. She was in Chile helping me, like, prepare and pack. And then I flew to Antarctica. I call her, and she's like, why are you calling? You know, she knows that I've just started. Like, what's, oh, is everything okay? What's wrong? And I was like, babe, like, I can't, like, pull the sled. Like, I'm, like, afraid. I'm embarrassed. I mean, I'm feeling all the emotions. And she says to me, Colin, how far are you away from the very first waypoint? And she knows I've got these kind of markings on right. my GPS that, like, tell me, you know, the route. And she knows the first waypoint from the airplane drop-off point is, like, very near. And I say to her, I'm like, I look at my GPS, I'm like, oh, the first waypoint is 0.54 miles away, as if it's, like, a million miles. And she's like, okay, so the first waypoint is a half a mile from where you are. She's like, I know you're going to try to, you know, your goal was to go 10 miles a day or whatever my first, you know, initial goal was. She goes, do me a favor. Don't stop where you are right now. Get yourself to that first waypoint. Then you can set up your tent, and at least you'll feel like today you made some sort of progress. You went from the drop-off point to the first waypoint, and then we'll regroup. We'll regroup. And so listening to her kind of sage wisdom, 
I get in, I force myself to go those next like half a mile. I'm struggling. I'm still crying. I'm still frozen tears in my face, but I get to that very first campsite. Yeah. And I won't give away all the, you know, the whole piece of the whole story. Cause I certainly want you to you know buy the book and check out the whole story. But to me, that exemplifies what you're saying, um, which is this massive thing. I was overwhelmed. It was like so far. I finally get out there. I'm looking at the endless white Antarctica. I'm alone. I'm feeling smaller than I've ever felt. And like, it's all falling apart. And it was just this memory of reminder from her of like, okay, do the first like little thing here. Yes. It's the thousand miles. Forget thinking, stop thinking about that. Forgot thinking about the massive, get to that first waypoint. And then the next morning, I'm a big believer that we are the stories that we tell ourselves. And I've been, you know, fan of mantras and things like that throughout my life. But I've never said this. And I wake up that next morning. I'm like, I need some sort of pep talk to start going. I just yell out to the endless Antarctic White out, Colin, you are strong. You are capable. You are strong. <laughs> yes. You are capable. I'm like just yelling that. Um, and the next day was still a massive struggle. And the next day after that was a massive struggle. And the next day after that was a massive struggle. But just getting to that first waypoint and kind of refocusing on that incremental progress certainly led me to break a massive goal like this down into its bite-sized chunk. So I think that that's, I mean, I mean, if I'm giving advice to anybody who's sitting, I say, put that huge goal on the whiteboard. Answer that big question. What's your efforts? You know, what do you want to do? Write that down. Like, put it there as you're like, you know, the big kind of anchor. And then almost like forget about it. Then ask yourself like, oh, like, is the first step to that, like sitting in front of my laptop and writing one email to a friend? Is it, you know, walking to a bookstore and buying the book about the thing that I want to learn how to do and actually reading the first five pages? You know, it's like it might be some long thing that's the process can take you five or 10 years, but it's like, what can I do today? And then ask yourself the same question. What can I do tomorrow? And you start stacking those many todays and tomorrows on top of each other over time. You can get to the proverbial summit or across the proverbial, you know, continent or, or what, what it, what it may be. Yeah, I love that. It's segmenting it down and then stacking the wins, uh, and and I, you just exemplify that. It's super beautiful. Let me let me actually one of the things as you were sharing that I was thinking about is because I remember you actually in my research that first waypoint was actually also like the starting line, right? Like yes. it was yes. like it was like you had actually got dropped off somehow behind the starting line, and it was just like you weren't even de- yet to the starting line, and uh, and what 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 sort of and I, I remember watching also, um, and I remember the guy you trained with actually broke his pull-up record, but listening to David Goggins where he was doing the 300-mile race and he went, like, off course yeah. by, like, I don't know, like 20 or 30 miles, something like that. Don't quote me, but it was, it was a, he went a while off course. And I just can imagine if you're, like, dropped off before the starting point or if you go off course and you've got this huge goal that some of those things can be, as, as with any metaphorical journey, right? Like you go, quote, unquote, off course. Yep. For those who are thinking through, you know, you know, whether they're in a challenging point in their life or they feel like they've gone off course from their path, what are some of the mindsets? Because I know you also train deeply in terms of, and, and as much as you're physically, obviously, tremendously accomplished, a lot of this comes from your mental fortitude. What are the ways in which you sort of prepare your mind for taking on some of these challenges and the inevitable, you know, sidesteps or off-course moments? Yeah, you know, certainly, you know, it's, it's fun or people love, love to ask, you know, how'd you train to pull a 375-pound sled? I'm not like a huge guy. Like, I'm a right. you know, pretty, like, normal-sized human being. Um, you, know, what, you know, what were the physical things? You know, how'd you get stronger? Did you gain weight? Did you lose weight? You know, all the things like that. But I always like to say, you know, the most important muscle that any of us has is the six inches between our ears. Yeah. You know, that is the muscle that needs to be flexed and developed more than anything um, to achieve certainly what I've done, but I think that really applies across, you know, all sorts of ways of high performance. Um, and 
Yeah. I mean, for me, the journey has started on that, um, you know, going back, you know, about 10 years, I was, you know, uh, first um, kind of given the advice of going to a 10 day Vipassana uh, meditation course. I'd never meditated a minute in my life. And I kind of dove headfirst into that while I was racing triathlon professionally at the time, kind of curious of kind of cultivating the mind uh, through that process. And uh, for those who don't know, there's, you know, Vipassana is, you know, a, a type of meditation, but there's courses all around the world. And the type that I go to, is completely free to go. It's like 250 centers around the world. Um, you know, no reading, no writing, no eye contact. Um, I, and people ask me, you know, sometimes like, what do you recommend that I do? And they're asking me like, what am I going to train? Or if I go here or meet this coach or this, and I'm like, but do me a favor. The best ROI of 10 days of your time is go to a 10 day silent meditation course that will completely, um, you know, impact your life. It certainly has for me. And I've gone back and repeated those 10 days often, but what the 10 days does and it did for me anyways, Certainly the deep immersion in the experience itself was very profound. Like I said, I've repeated that, you know, those 10 days several times since then um, and will continue to do so. But it actually gives me a pathway of a daily practice. And when I say, you know, you want to get stronger in the gym. Okay, I want to lift more weights. Okay, do you think, okay, well, then I better go to the gym, you know, three days a week and, you know, rest and eat properly and all this kind of stuff. What I think people miss about the mindset piece of this and the training element of the mind is that sometimes people go like, you know, what's a silver bullet? How do I get my mind stronger? It's like, well, just like you want to get stronger at the gym by lifting more weights, like you need to take your mind to the mental gym every single day. You need to cultivate that daily practice that actually, you know, gets into that self-awareness. And your question is about, you know, being off course. Like we are all going to be off course, you know, and there's no person out there, at least no one I've ever met where their mind doesn't wander or their mind, you know, even if they're generally oriented towards a positive or if they have that negative self-talk, they have that doubt in their head. They have those moments where they're like, you know, flooded with fear or doubt. Shoot. Like I've, you know, been able to accomplish some things in my life, but I, I live with that daily, you know, those moments of like, Oh, I don't know. I mean, that, maybe that is a bad idea. Or, you know, you know, maybe that's not going to work out or you're not good enough or, you know, we've all had those feelings inside, you know, regularly. And just like being physically off course, as you were saying, you know, you know, David Goggins running off course or me, you know, starting before the actual beginning of the start and the frustration of that, it's recognizing that in your mind. And that's what that daily practice for me anyways has done is actually had an awareness of like, oh, my mind is literally going off course right now. It's orienting in a negative way. But the awareness of being like, oh, but I actually am the only one in control of actually bringing that back on course. Just like in a running race, you know, if you run 15 miles off course, you're the only one that can actually, you're like, man, this sucks, but I actually can run myself back on the course and choose to continue on the race. And so in sort of a more, you know, metaphorical sense in your mind, as your mind starts wandering towards the negative, towards, towards the, the fetus, you know, negative self-talk, you can just be happy like, oh, wait, I don't need to be so hard on myself right now. I can orient that back towards the positive. I can get this back on course. And I think that having that daily practice allows you to have those sparks of awareness more quickly and sort of reorient yourself back. Mm. Beautiful. And for those listening, Goenka, the Vipassana, if you just Google Vipassana, those 10-day retreats um, are incredible. And as you said, they're donation-based. So yeah. it doesn't matter your means. Um, uh, incredible asset to developing the mind. Um, I know you had a, a huge training protocol before coming in. Did In, in the context of, of the physical and the mental training, what, what were some of the core tools that really served you the best as you were on this solo journey? I mean, what's interesting to me also is, and this came to me as I was doing my research, I was like, you know, the greatest punishment that, that, that sort of exists in the context of our penal system is solitary confinement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. yet, and yet you self-imposed, you were solo. And I, I think you said, if I re- recollect correctly, you didn't even see an animal when you, once you were like yeah. off the coast uh, in the middle of this vast ice. 
So to be that long solo, I imagine, obviously, of course, I mean, coming from a triathlete, it's not like you were a strong man, not that you're not strong, yeah. but like you were, you were an endurance athlete by training and then to, to then be pulling this 375 pound sled, but also to be doing it in total silence solo, I imagine often in whiteout conditions, what aspects of your training, both physically and mentally, became sort of your core, like, like the, the greatest core assets in that process? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things. I'll, I'll answer the physical side of it real quick first because we just kind of went into the mental side and then kind of where those two things overlaid. Yeah. Um, you know, on the physical side of things, you know, I found this amazing coach and trainer, a guy named Mike McCastle. Uh, you mentioned it briefly, but he, you know, broke did break David Goggins' pull-up record as well as some other records. He did 5,804 pull-ups in, like, you know, 22 hours or something like with this. With weights With off, a 30-pound right? weight vest. <laughs> um, he's pulled a, you know, F-150 truck across Death Valley, like, 22. I mean, this guy's, like, a true beast. beast. Uh, so I figured if I'm going to ask somebody how to pull heavy things far, he'd probably be a good guy to start with. But it was great. You know, he's got, you know, four world records himself. And, um, you know, at the sort of level or sort of in my life, at this point, after being a professional athlete for a long time, I don't necessarily, you know, same when you're a kid, you need a coach to say, like, you got to show up to work hard, you know, and motivate you. Like, I don't need that motivation, but I need kind of a mind share of somebody to think, like, we're trying to do something that no one in history has ever done. In fact, we're trying to do something that people have tried to do and failed at doing. So there's no, there's no blueprint for doing this. And so having someone like Mike, basically an amazing, you know, the guy knows the body, he knows the mind, but also that can we, him and I can have this kind of um, collaboration of trying to figure out like how best would somebody train for this how can we prepare the body and the mind for this and he came up with some mega creative things that ultimately I, you know he's just trying them out on me it's like he doesn't have the blueprint either right but he's coming up with things where i'm you know, he's like one day he's got me in the gym and I'm you know doing push-ups and then I'm doing you know sit-ups and then I you know I've got my heart rate jacked up doing this kind of all you know, body weight exercise and all of a sudden he's like okay you know put your hands in these ice buckets and I've got my hands I'm doing a plank my hands are in these frozen ice buckets and then he's like okay now do a you know a wall sit now I'm sitting against the wall but now my feet are in the ice buckets my hands are just frozen in the ice buckets and he hands me these little ropes and these Legos and he goes you got to solve the next ten steps of this Lego problem and tie these five ropes until you can get your feet out of this and he starts yelling at me like you know fractions you know what's four divided by two what's the you know all this stuff and i'm like thinking like this is crazy like what what's happening here and he's like he's like look you are going to be in an environment that's a life and death situation where your hands are frozen your feet are cold your mind is racing and if you can't focus all of that in body mind in that moment because if he knew when i was setting up my tent in these storms if i didn't tie one rope properly if i didn't pound the stake in right if i didn't do the safety protocols at all a storm in the middle of antarctica boom my tent blows away i'm alone no shelter um and very little hope of rescue and that exact thing happened out there. Um, in fact, it's a, you know, I won't give it away, but it's a prologue of my book actually starts out in this moment where I almost let go of my tent and it's nearly blowing away and I grab it right before I see it kind of blow off and take away, take off in, a, in the middle of there, which would have, you know, likely been fatal. Um, and I go back to that training. I'm like, it seemed crazy at the time, but he was doing the best to simulate the intensity of all these things that I would be going through. Um, and that's, of course, the body and the physical of getting me stronger in the actual physical exercise that I'm doing, but also combining that with, you know, the mental stress and then dexterity in my hands. And ultimately that comes down to is like, can I calm my mind in those moments and still be hyper aware and hyper focused on the small, minute tasks that are all important to literally keeping me alive? Unreal. 
Uh, yeah, because if the tent blew away, you would be bas- – it's basically life or death. Yeah, definitely alone out there. And, um, yeah, there's no – certainly in a massive storm and certainly on parts of the continent, a very, very hard for a rescue party to come or get me in any sort of, like, reasonable amount of time, uh, particularly without a tent. You're not going to be able to survive for very long. Yeah. So in those – I can imagine, like, the most challenging moments because I saw, for example, on your Instagram, you know, when you're setting this tent up in these storms, I mean, unreal conditions – um, and inevitably, I mean, you know, I haven't done anything by any measure to that extreme, but having trained in winter mountaineering, like when you're cold and your fingers are freezing, you're trying to set up a tent. Yeah. Now you, and then, then you're in Antarctica and you've been walking across the freaking continent. And if the tent blows away, it's life or death. Uh, how do you, how did you still the mind? Like what, what kind of, cause I imagine it must've been, I mean, I've done solo, nothing obviously to the, to the scale you're talking about, but I've done solo sort of vision fasts. And it does, like, your mind goes, at least in my experience, after, like, five, six days, my mind went into a different place, the best way to describe it. I feel like it tunes into a different frequency. Mm -hmm. I can only imagine for you, solo, in those kinds of arduous conditions you would tap into a different mental place. Yeah, 100%. And you mentioned before about how solitary confinement, you know, is you know, considered one of, like, the deepest, darkest punishments, yeah. you know, possible. One of my curiosities for doing this um, and setting off on this adventure was actually a curiosity about sort of the body and the mind, sort of, you know, you know, spiritual journey of that. And so, although, of course, I was very nervous and plenty of, like, trepidation about what I was going to encounter, before embarking, I was like, the silence and the stillness and the solitude is why I'm doing this. Like, I was doing this more for personal growth and, and creativity and curiosity than to like just add a notch to my belt and be like, oh, I was the first to do this thing. Like that was my deepest curiosity about this project. And so right before I left, I actually deleted almost all of my music, almost all my content, everything from my phone so I could actually say, you know what, I am in silence and not have like that crutch of this. I want to actually embrace the stillness and now there's two things about that one is actually you know kind of forcing myself to do that but it's also um in the intention around doing that is kind of a reframing of saying instead of this punishment of being in silence like you would say maybe in a prison or something like that obviously i don't have personal experience with that um but it's like oh my god i have to be doing this someone's forcing me to be alone this is horrible this is torture right Versus I was like, I, with my own volition, am choosing to do this, and I'm embracing this. The curiosity is alive. And I think that that's a big, like, it makes subtle, subtle, but a big, important mental shift of saying, like, I want to dive into this. And as... You know, I've often joked, I said, you know, being alone for 54 days in the middle of Antarctica. Now, keep in mind, it's also 24 hours of daylight, so the light's not changing. Like you said, there's no animals, there's no wildlife, nothing like that. Sun's never setting, and it's just endless white. So not only do I have, like, no, you know, stimuli from, you know, in my ears or listening or whatever, there's also just nothing to see. It's just, like, literally just, like, the blankest white canvas of, like, all time. And so by, you know, kind of deleting all of that, I was like, I want to go. But it's like I say, it's like throwing a party inside your brain and all of your angels and all of your demons are invited. Like just like every (laughs) single thought, every single memory, every single weird, crazy thing that you've ever like had in your brain are in there. But as you say, my curiosity was to tap into kind of that higher plane um, and ultimately these flow states that I experienced outward were some of the most profound experiences in my life, Um, you know. And the memories, and I'll get to the flow in a second and the, some of those moments of deep flow. But even before that, um, you know, memories, the first thing that started coming in the first four or five days, all of a sudden I would think of a memory 
And imagine I said to you, I said, you know, Michael, uh, you remember your high school graduation or something like that? Like something's going to pop in your mind, but we're going to keep talking right now. And, you know, your mind will drift off somewhere. If we were in normal life, your phone might ring or whatever. But in this deep stillness with like nothing to like distract my brain, I would be like, oh, I'm, I'm thinking about my first swim race when I was five years old. And then all of a sudden, like a lucid dream, I'm like on the pool deck and like the wind's blowing across my face. And I can see the kid next to me. And my mom's on the other side of the pool with an orange towel, like cheering for me. And I can feel every single stroke and I can feel the water around my face, like fully immersed into these memories. And not only that, but not even just like big moments of my life, you know, hallmark moments, like you said, like a, a graduation or, you know, the day you met your, your, your my day I met Jenna. Of course, those memories are burned into my mind anyways, but mundane things like I could be like, oh, it's a uh, 10th grade and I'm, it's a Tuesday and I'm driving to school with my sister and like nothing exciting happens, but I can live the entire car ride back. I'm just sitting there like, oh, she grabs for the CD and this is on the radio and there's the, you know, brother car next to us and we're at the stoplight, like literally all of these details and I could go in like these file folders inside of my brain to all these sort of visceral memories and emotions and that was just you know wildly interesting and also this interesting thing to say like wow it's all in there I think that we um I certainly thought you know, oh, I can't remember all sorts of things in my life. That's gone. That'll never come back to me. And realizing that, of course, maybe it's not readily accessible, but it's all in there. And our current moment in life is a stacking of all these memories, both conscious and subconscious, but that are all a part of us and live inside of us. And so to get into that place um, in the brain was very fascinating. You know, I, I cried. I laughed out loud to myself in these moments of reliving these moments. But ultimately, it was just a really, really um, interesting and, and, and beautiful thing to experience. Can you tap into that place? I mean, it sounds like the conditions and the silence that it afforded enabled that state. Yeah. Have you found other ways to approximate that flow state, things that other people could apply? Yeah. So, I mean, and the other thing that's interesting is that uh, it bears mentioning, you know, the structure of my book even is, although it's sort of a linear retelling of the crossing of Antarctica, it actually goes and tells throughout my entire life. And what happens sort of in the narrative and the way that I wrote the book is that I'm walking across Antarctica. I'm telling the you know, in- intensity of that story as well as like I'm actually racing another guy across Antarctica. There's a whole other part of it and like that intensity, whatever. But then I'm in my mind remembering these things, but I'm remembering them with such vivid detail because that's how it was happening for me out there. And so ultimately the book unfolds and it's a retelling of, like I said, my whole story and my family relationships and my mother and, and Jenna. And, you know, there's a lot of people who've read this book who aren't like necessarily core adventure enthusiasts, but they've gotten so much value from the story, the love story, the entrepreneurial journey, the all the other kind of pieces of elements that are kind of woven together in this fabric. And that's how the experience also was in my mind as I was going throughout there, as I was in Antarctica, but I was also transported to these other places in my brain uh, and in my history and my memories. Um, And in terms of actually accessing that um, in a day-to-day life, certainly that stillness and certainly that blank white canvas of Antarctica um, was a catalyst or an accelerant to being able to get there. Um, But I have been able to, you know, get there more and more uh, in my life and particularly the memory and the lucid memory piece of it is certainly related, but it's slightly different to kind of some of these flow states that I experienced there. These moments of just peak high performance where, you know, my body, um, you know, despite kind of my body breaking down, you know, towards the end, I was, you know, getting real low on food. I had to, you know, actually cut my rations even more. I, you know, my ribs and my, you know, hips were sticking out. Like I was very skinny, um, you know, just weak. I was starting to have a little bit of frostbite on my cheek and the tip of my nose and pieces of little parts of my fingers. I mean, I was really kind of 
breaking down towards the end, obviously. Um, and I remember this moment, you know, towards the end, I could barely like pick up my duffel bag to put it inside my sled. It just like felt like, you know, a ton of bricks. I could like, barely even pick it up. But then I strapped my sled on just like I did every single day. And I was pulling my sled about 12 plus hours every single day. It was an average day for me. And I could never took a day off in 54 days because if I did, I was definitely going to run out of food. So um, no rest days for 54 days. And, and I'm like, well, getting ready for another 12-hour days, I can barely even pull my duffel bag in my sled. My sled did get lighter as I went because I was eating my food. And even though it was so much lighter than the beginning, I was still struggling. But then all of a sudden, I clicked in these places in my mind, these flow states, where all of a sudden, although my body's weakness was, clear, was very clear and very objective, my mind could override that weakness. And I'd get in these places in my mind, you know, particularly towards the end of actually really embracing the sounds and the stillness where all of a sudden I could generate this kind of like inner power uh, from within and these deep flow states where I could just, you know, felt strong. I felt capable. The mantra that I said at the beginning, I actually was starting to ring true. And, you know, the final push, you know, I ended up going 32 hours straight and 77 miles in one single push um, to complete the project, which is not something I had ever planned on, but it was because I had tapped into this deep place in my mind. And all of a sudden I was like, my body's falling apart, but my mind feels stronger than ever. And it's this great reminder, I think, that oftentimes it's our brain that actually limits us. It's our mind that goes like, oh, you're tired. You should stop. Or uh, like I said, you know, oh, that's a good idea. But, you know, that's not for you. And I found these places in these flow in my mind were actually kind of it was all synced up. And my brain was telling my body, yes, your body's weak right now, but you have more in you. You can push further. You can go deeper. And in these flow states, it wasn't as if like a some people have asked me, I was like, oh, is that like time travel? Was that like, like you kind of blacked out and you ended up walking for 30 hours without stopping? And it was the opposite. It was like hyper awareness. So I could feel every moment. I could taste every second. I could smell every breath. Um, and so the 32 hours almost felt like weeks of time, but in a beautiful place. Like I didn't want it to end. It was euphoric. It was a peak high experience of just um, gratitude. Um, and the last chapter of my book is actually titled Infinite Love. Um, and maybe not what you'd expect from a guy who walked across Antarctica, like being like, you know, a lot of people expect me to write a book that's like, let me tell you about this hardcore badass thing that I did. And that would just not be suiting my personality, anything anyways, but certainly wouldn't be reflective of my experience because at the end of this thing, I've, you know, about to, you know, set this historic world record, be the world first. And all I felt was just this resonant energy of positivity and love. And this, this mantra of infinite love, infinite love and gratitude. I actually, you know, put my arms out into the sky and actually was just receiving all of this love and energy that kind of fueled this flow state and then really just reflecting that back out because my whole goal with you know writing this book the impossible first or sharing this story of the day or the work I do with school kids you know I hope that someone reads you know my book the impossible first and sets it down and I don't want them to send me a message and go wow man what you did was really incredible to me I like that would be to miss the point what I hope you know what I love what it happens is you know when someone sets that book down and goes oh my god Colin I just read the impossible first and now I'm ready to take on my impossible first and here's the action that I'm going to take in my life because thank you for showing me that I have that strength within myself as well because I think the experience that I had out there is a a experience a human experience that any of us can tap into and like I said I don't wouldn't expect anyone to go on to go walk across Antarctica for 54 days by themselves but tapping into that resonant love that inner energy that positivity that grace that gratitude um, humility that we can all sort of harness and uplift each other I think is uh, available for anyone um, to to have and access in their life yeah, I love that. I think I think some of the things you reckon 
you recommend and you acknowledge in, 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 is in the statement is just basically, you know, the importance of gratitude, you know, love, all, all, some of these universal um, human aspects, which, as you say, is somewhat counterintuitive to someone who's accomplished this, you know, super uh, kind of historic feat. Um, but I love that you bring it back and everyone go pick up a copy of Impossible First to the context of those who are looking to achieve their impossible dream, whatever that may be. What, what, are, what are for you now, having done several firsts, impossible firsts, mm -hmm. um, you know, from you know, climbing these summits uh, to walking solo unassisted across Antarctica to just literally, uh, I think at Christmas you finished row rowing back to Antarctica <laughs> in an impossible first, which we haven't even touched on yet. But basically, in the context of these incredible challenges, what are some of the core insights that you've garnered that other people can apply in their lives? Yeah, um... There's definitely there's quite a few. The first one that pops into my mind is um, I believe that we're the net product of the five or ten people we spend the most time around. Yes. Um, and that's really, you know, I, I say, you know, it's my name on the cover of this book. Um, and it's ultimately a journey, of a solo journey of, you know, me walking across Antarctica by myself. But this never happens. I mean, I've mentioned Jenna before, but this never happens without having a core group of people that say, like, yeah. The world at large is saying this project is impossible. I mean, you can find, you know, so all sorts of, you know, I think Wired Magazine wrote a big article that says this sort of crossing of Antarctica is impossible. You can't take enough food. It doesn't work. I mean, I could find, like, true references of, you know, people who have thought about this and been like, this is impossible. But instead, again, I acknowledge that it might be very challenging. I might acknowledge that there might be some impossibility in this. But also it's like, okay, where are the five or ten people that I can talk to every single day that actually believe in the possibility of this? Let me dive into that energy. And so whatever, you know, whatever you're doing in your life, and it doesn't have to be, you know, some like, you know, big feat. It doesn't even, you know, it can just be, God, I want to be a better parent. I, you know, I want to be a better, you know, husband or wife. I want to, you know, whatever that is. But people that actually support and believe in your vision or your goal um, it's amazing what a catalyst for change, um, that can be. And yeah. to me, that is so important. You know, I think we all have, you know, some people in our life, whether that's family members or old friends or things like that, where you're like, wow, like every time I'm around this person, I feel like worse about myself, or I yeah. feel like less able to achieve my dreams and stuff like that. And I think there's probably, uh, maybe, uh, a gentle way to unpack or unwind some of those relationships, but it's a, important, I think, to kind of take stock of that and go like, who am I spending the most time around or forget about even in the physical space, you know, talk about social media for a second. You know, I certainly use social media to share and tell this story and I think that there's value in that. I also think that there's a lot of things on social media, a lot, a lot, a lot that are very negative inside of our own brains. Um, and I'm guilty of being on my phone and I'm like, I set it down. I'm like, am I feeling like worse about myself right now? Like, why am I doing that? And like, you get to choose what's in your social media feed. So the same way you get to choose the five or 10 people that you spend the most time around. And hopefully if you fill your life with people that fill your cup, that inspire you, that ultimately you're inspiring as well. It's not like just, just taking from these people. These are people that hopefully you're also giving that energy back to. But it's also, 
look in your social media feed. If you're just looking at stuff of, you know, oh, people, and I, every single, like, those people are prettier than me, or those people have, like, a way cooler life than me, or this, and, like, that's the way you feel, like, delete those people, like, stop following them, you know, like, <laughs> yes. it's, an, it's, it's your own reaction to it. If you're seeing people travel the world, and it's inspiring you, like, I'm going to travel the world one day, and this person's traveling there, and this, and I'm going home, and I'm saving up money, because I'm going to take a trip there, too, like, if that's giving you inspiration, awesome, but understand that that is also the people, quote, unquote, even though you might only, you don't know them, they might be some random person you're following online like they are also a part of your sort of people in that you know five or ten person or you know maybe larger group that's in your mind so to me that is super key and super crucial um you know my people have often interviewed my mom as she played such a significant role obviously in my life but also really specifically in recovering from this burn accident, you know, where I was told I would never walk again normally in Thailand 12 years ago. And what she did in that moment, she came over to my hospital room, even though she was, you know, being told this horrible thing about her son. Uh, and the doctors were saying like, look, he's never going to walk again normally. She just came into my hospital room every single day and said, Colin, let's set a goal. Let's look towards the future. Wrap me in love and positivity and kind of dared me to say like, no, you can beat this diagnosis. What do you want to do when you get out of here? And the lesson in that is for me, and people have asked my mother, you must be so afraid now of Colin attempting these, you know, impossible first, the solo, you know, you tell your mother you're going to walk across Antarctica by yourself for a thousand miles. Like, she's not like her for like happy, you know, <laughs> happiest <laughs> yeah, moment, no. you know? But yeah. she is extraordinarily proud of me, and she never was like, don't do that. She never let her own fear say, like, she's like, okay, of course this makes me nervous, but like, let's talk about this. I'm proud of you. I believe in you. And when people ask her a really direct question, they go, you know, as a mother, let's be honest, you must be really afraid of Colin doing these things. And I love her response has been, you know, she kind of gets this coy smile on her face and she goes, you know, yes, I am afraid. But she goes, careful what you wish for when every single day you tell your kid that they can achieve anything they set their mind to. Yes. And it's a way of a nod of, and it's the, it's the truth is one of the people that I was just fortunate to spend most of my time around as a kid, my mother, you don't really have a huge choice in that, uh, generally speaking, um, was somebody who just looked at me and was like, well, we didn't have a lot of money when I was a kid, not a lot of resources. We weren't like flying around with a really kind of, you know, really pretty simple life throughout my childhood. Um, but she was believing in me. When I watched the Olympics on TV when I was seven years old, and I was like, oh, my God, that's so cool. That guy just won a gold medal, and he's swimming, and that's my new hero, this guy named Pablo Morales, and this and that. My mom looked at me, and she goes, do you think you want to go to the Olympics one day? What do you think that would look like? Well, there's a local swim team down the street. Like, do you want to, like, should I sign you up for swim lessons? Should I sign you to get in the pool? And, like, all of a sudden, you know, I didn't make the Olympics, but ended up as a collegiate swimmer and, you know, and a professional triathlete and things like that. So being around people that uplift you, that believe in you, that you wanted that. And there is such a thing, such an amazing thing. I touched on it briefly of how much energy you actually get, how weirdly self-serving it can be to support other people's goals and other people's dreams. Like Jenna has been, you know, kind of in the quote unquote more supportive role of my expeditions, but I'm so excited. I'm jacked up this year. She said to me last year, she goes, you know, this year I want to climb Mount Everest. You know, she says this to me and I said, my next Everest is climb Mount Everest. Now, Jenna is not somebody who has self-identified as being an, an athlete or an explorer or an adventure. I mean, she's just not how she grew up, you know, grew up, you know, a single mother, 
Massachusetts. Didn't, you know, she danced ballet. She did some things like that, but it's not like a, you know, quote unquote athlete. Um, and over time, she's been so close to this stuff. She's done, we've done some made amazing adventures together. We've been on big mountaintops together, but that's not her core identity. But she was like, you know, I want to climb Mount Everest. And so this year it's been so fun for me to kind of, you know, shift the tables and just be pouring love and energy into helping her achieve that goal. So in April of this year, we're going to um, go back to Everest. My second time over there, her first, I climbed from Nepal before, but we're going to climb from the north side of Tibet, but in service to her goal to be there, you know, supporting her. And it's amazing. I just feel, I feel it inside of myself as I'm talking about it even right now, but just in general, how fun it is to help also support other people's goals and that kind of, re- you know, reverberation of that infinite love that I talked about as I was actually had my arms out on the ice receiving that I was like, I am broken right now in Antarctica. I need energy from the rest of the world. And I felt that energy and that love and that infinite love pour into me. And I actually would pull my arms in and actually feel it. Then I would shoot my arms back out and actually shoot that energy back out into the world as well. And I think that that sort of reflection or that ripple effect of positivity that we can share with each other is ultimately such an extraordinary thing of the human experience. Mate, I totally agree. Beautifully said. Uh, I mean, and also scientifically verified. I mean, Harvard, uh, in my research, you know, Harvard's longest longitudinal study of its kind demonstrates the greatest corollary, the fundamental greatest corollary to your long-term health and happiness is the caliber of your long-term relationships. Mm-hmm. And so, and interesting that you mentioned, which I think is, is really um, salient in this digital age, you know, even if we don't have a physical relationship, just like a book can be a mentor, you know, Einstein could be my mentor because I could read and delve deeply into his insights. If you're following, you know, you know, someone on social media and giving them your time, your most valuable commodity, you are in a way letting them mentor you. So you better, you know, right. yeah, how, what that evokes in you is a huge indicator thermostat, if you will, on, on whether that's a positive or negative, super beautiful. Uh, it also brings me in a beautiful way to transition, you had this incredible feat of this solo crossing. And then just recently, you accomplished another impossible first in a row, but that was a team. And I actually wrote in college, so okay. I'm, I'm very aware of, of the, uh, and cognizant of the flow that happens in a row, commensurate with those you're relating to. Yep. And given the, the, the tight confines that you were, you were in, um, and also the fact that principally you've been a, as I understand it, I mean, obviously you said you have tremendous support, but you're largely, your success or failure in the past has, has been pretty much principally on your shoulders, mm-hmm. as I understand it. In this context, you're again entering into relating and 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 doing something that's team, like a, it's basically a team success. Yep. Um, how was that transition for you mentally? And what would you say, how would you draw a distinction between sort of what it took to achieve your goals as an individual and what it's like to also modify and or adopt when you're in a situation that's a collective effort? Yeah, no, uh, it's definitely very different um, and, and beautiful in, in its own right. So after finishing the Impossible First, a solo crossing of Antarctica last year, um, well, I don't know why I thought I should do another expedition right away, but <laughs> that's, I guess, how my brain works. And I yes. thought, you know, what are the things that I'm, you know, interested in and what I want to do differently? So a lot of people, and, and no knock on this, but a lot of people, uh, particularly that specialize in sports in a high-performance, you know, way or expeditions or something like that, they're like, I'm a great, you know, backcountry skier. I'm an amazing rock climber. So they climb an amazing rock face, and they're looking for the next 
rock face to climb, um, the next route, you know, in that discipline. And although I think that that's incredible, I mean, God, amazing. I'm not knocking that at all. My mind actually went to like, how can I apply these lessons learned, but in a kind of tangentially or actually different type of way, but still drawing on a lot of these experiences that I've had. So I've been super curious about doing something in the ocean. I've never done something, and I've never been wide, deep, open ocean in anything before. You know, I've never sailed open ocean. I've certainly never rode a boat in the open ocean before. Um, and I've actually never rode a boat ever. You rode in college. <laughs> I have literally, before last year, before at least several months ago, literally never rode a boat anywhere. And so I set this up the goal of to see if, as a team, and I'll get into the team part in a second because that's a really interesting part of this, to see if, as a team, we could row a boat across Drake Passage, so from the southern tip of South America, um, you know, roughly, you know, 607 miles, 700 miles um, to the uh, peninsula of Antarctica, which had never been done in history to make that crossing. And the Drake Passage is known as, you know, the most treacherous ocean crossing in the world. It's a convergence of the Atlantic and the Pacific and the Southern Ocean. You know, there's commonly, you know, 40 plus foot waves out there. There's icebergs. You know, the water temperature is, uh, you know, one degree Celsius or 33 Fahrenheit, basically frozen ocean waters, you know, splashing over this rowboat. It's a tiny little rowboat, you know, 29 foot rowboat. There's six of us on there, you know, three people rowing at any given time, you know, huge waves crashing over the boat. Um, we caught, we did experience several, you know, 30 and 40 foot swells. And so how do you ride out these storms in this little little itty bitty rowboat? It was a <laughs> wild expedition, um, to say the least, but you know, before we get into like the details of the expedition itself, it was, there was this question of, we talked a lot about the mindset and what I was able to cultivate in this solitude. I was like, can I take the mindset of that from pushing myself, my body, and my mind into a new discipline? You know, I love this idea of a beginner's mind of to be like, okay, like, can I take this beginner's mind or actually, you know, acquire a new skill, this growth mindset of saying like, yeah, I've never rowed a boat. I certainly wasn't a collegiate rower. I've, you know, literally never been on a rowboat um, before in my life, not one time. Um, can I quickly learn a new skill and then apply it at like the most, you know, highest level in this crazy environment. And so that was an interesting challenge um, for me throughout this year as I train and prepare for that. And then of course, as you mentioned, you know, in the question is, the team element of it. I've done something solo, which in itself, the solitude, the loneliness, the emptiness, those angels and demons in your brain um, that I mentioned, that was the challenge of the impossible first. But the row is the opposite, which is to say like, but there's also some things about being solo that can be a little bit easier mm. because you're making your own decisions. You're leading into your own body, your own strengths and your weaknesses. And you can really be a barometer and make decisions really fluidly because it's, you know, just one person you're making decisions with. As long as you can bargain with yourself, like you can make some decisions. Now you've got six people working towards a goal. And as I imagine you felt this, that flow state of being on a crew boat in college when you're rowing, like when you're linked up and the swing of the oars is like dialed, it's in a really powerful feeling. Yep. But the second one person gets out of sync and clanks the other other guy's oars or yeah. catch a crab or you fly out of the boat or this you're pretty frustrated with that guy from you like god damn it this yeah. guy, you know and so those interpersonal tensions you know how to how to manage that and and obviously my goal and ultimately we were successful in doing this is how do you bring a team of people together Ultimately, our, our team was, you know, from all over the world, you know, four different countries, three different continents. Um, none of us really knew each other super well before this expedition. Um, and so it was interesting to dive into that and um, to be one of the people facilitating the leadership um, in this and bringing this team together. And ultimately, could we be successful as a team? And it was, uh, you, know, you know, of course, complete with ups and downs. But mostly, it was amazing how well our team came together and the success of this expedition and the success of you know, doing this safely and successfully, which we uh, ultimately finished the row um, 
on uh, Christmas Day of this past year, so just uh, about a month ago, um, not less than a month ago, um, was incredible. And it was really cool, too, you know, the way we were able to share it. We did a big partnership with Discovery, and we were able to film it and share it in real time live. And so people on Christmas yeah, Day, it. you I know, was... you could be on Instagram and see me, like, bashing around this tiny little boat. Like, yes. I'm warm inside with my family. Oh, what's Colin doing? Oh, God, he's miserable and wet <laughs> exactly. and cold. And I was following was along. I was like, this is classic. Yeah. I mean, but also super powerful Christmas Day uh, to, yeah. to, to, to have achieved that. And then I imagine uh, hopefully you got a little bit of celebration in. What's interesting is also, not to, to flip stories, that therein obviously you had a collective to celebrate with when, yeah. you, when you hit the finish line, yeah. quote unquote, metaphorically. In Antarctica, you were solo. Like there was, yeah. there was no one. There was no one to cheer you. You know, at the end of that marathon, so to speak. Yeah. And what was it like? And as I understand it, you, uh, to your credit, actually stuck around to welcome home the other gentleman who you were. I don't know if you want us to call racing with, but both happened to be look, going after the same goal at the same time. Um, and as I understand, it took almost probably a week for you to get off or get back to where you were going. Uh, what was it like? Because I think there's something interesting, right? We always look at the finish line, right? As, as, as okay, cool, like there's the end of the story. Hollywood movie over. But the transition is actually a really interesting aspect, right? Like how do you move from that impossible first or whatever that goal is that you've achieved into uh, integration, for mm-hmm. lack of a better term? Like how do you integrate those principles, right? Yeah. Like uh, any peak experience or ecstasies, like traditionally, as, as you, I think we've shared, you know, I studied rituals deeply um, when I was doing my Fulbright and it was a lot of it was like how do you bring someone back in how do you do this integration process because there's the ecstatic experience which many of us chase and I would I would say sports and expeditions are uh, although I'm sure many times don't feel like ecstasies no, in a way it's an, it, 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 you know, in a way it's an ecstasies but but often the work in terms of actually the transformative implications are in the integration. Mm-hmm. So for you, what does what does integration look like in such a way? as are there any core again kind of core insights that those who you know? Because I also will say a lot of times people are just chasing the ecstasies, yeah, you know, and they're never doing the integration. Oh, I think that to me that's one of the most important aspects of all of this is that integration of the lessons learned. Like I said, I don't so much do these things for, you know, just the, the accomplishment. You know, if you did that, I guess you wouldn't have to integrate it because the finish line, you'd be like, I did it. Look at me. Let me beat my chest on the top of this mountain or the end of this yeah. expedition or the finish line or whatever. But I do them for the growth, the personal growth, the lesson learned for me to interpret them myself. And then, you know, I've been given and, and built a platform to be able to share those lessons as well. And I'm humbled and, and grateful to do that. But I wouldn't be serving myself, certainly. And I certainly wouldn't be serving any others if I didn't have a moment to actually reflect and be like, okay, like, what was meaningful what were the lessons learned here um you know you mentioned at the end of the solo antarctica crossing uh i you know i ultimately wasn't set up this way but ultimately another explorer um was attempting the crossing guy by the name of lou rudd um really accomplished a british explorer at the exact same time and when i mean the exact same time when we got dropped off we got dropped off a mile equidistance from each other and it was like ready go like so you can become the first to cross this now no one had ever done the crossing so no one knew if either of us were going to be successful um and ultimately uh it became clear um 
that I was going to finish first, but that he was just a few days behind me. And so although I desperately wanted some more food and a warm meal and to be inside and to shower and all these things, I elected to stay there at the finish um, so that I could really congratulate him and honor him because it's an extraordinary accomplishment. And although, you know, I was first by a few days, um, no one else had ever done this before and he did it as well. And ultimately, I think that competition um, really kind of uplifted others. I know for me, I leaned into on those harshest moments, like I got to keep going because if I don't go, I know Lou's going today. And just so you know, that sort of uh, intensity uh, of that certainly pushed me and fueled me. And so um, in that moments of infinite love, although there was these kind of tense moments of this kind of race element of this, I just started feeling this immense like gratitude and love for Lou as well. And so, you know, it would be a shame to finish an experience like this. And there's, you know, 7 billion people on the planet. There's one other guy who actually knows what it's like to be alone in Antarctica on this exact crossing. And instead I could just like fly out and leave and never talk to him ever again. It was like, no, like I want to be there and I want to like, you know, honor him for his extraordinary accomplishment at the finish and also have someone to like debrief and like unwind this or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, I was texting with him like four or five days ago. We, we've remained friends. Um, and a lot of people in the media have like really tried to kind of pit us against each other. Oh, you must, you know, and it's like this patriarch, you know, he's British, I'm American, trying to be the first. And yes, we were both trying to be first. It was an intense competition, but at the same time, certainly as we're on the other side of it, it's like, you know, here's the one guy who knows about this. I was in London a few months ago. His first, first phone call was like, hey, Lou, do you want to get together and like have a coffee? And like, yeah. I'm still unpacking some of this stuff. But one of the things not specific to Lou, but that was super important for me um, and actually really important for me in this year when I wrote this book about this experience was, you know, I didn't realize it. And Jenna kind of kept me sheltered from it. time. I knew that there was some press and some media, like, you know, some few stories written and stuff like this, but I didn't quite realize the scope or scale of that. And so when I'm in, I didn't know until I got back from Antarctica and she was like, um, we're finding New York city tomorrow. You're going to be on the today show tomorrow morning. I'm like, wait, I've been a what? Like, she's like, yeah, a lot of people have been following this project. Like a lot, a lot. And I mentioned, you know, before ultimately, you know, 2 billion media impressions or something like that. I was not aware of that, um, while it was happening. Um, and obviously it's not like the reason I did it. Oh, get a bunch of press. Um, I did it, you know, for, for many different reasons than that. But I'm sitting alone in my tent, uh, and it's a couple of days that I'm there, and I'm waiting for Lou at the finish line. So I finish. Like you said, there's no fanfare. There's no one congratulating me. I'm still in the middle of this barren white landscape alone. It actually feels a lot like other days, except I don't have to get up and pull my sled. I can yeah. sleep in a few hours, you know? And I was like, just you know, intuitively, because um, I journal throughout my entire life and journal my entire experiences, I just, you know, got out my pen and paper and started writing. And again, that's something I've been doing since I was a little kid and did throughout the entire Antarctica journey. But I wrote this piece of writing um, that day, the day after I finished, that has actually ended up being one of the most important things that I've ever written. And it's not something I've ever just shared publicly. It's just from my own personal journal, but a reference point of assimilating all of the things of this experience. And of course, I couldn't assimilate it all the, immediately the day after, but in a very raw, authentic, vulnerable place before anyone's talked to me, before I've seen anybody else, before a single interview, before any of this, of just me with nothing, you know, I'm not like you don't lie, I'm not lying to myself in my journal. Like, how am I feeling right now? Let me lean into this this. And I wrote these six principles down of kind of my core learnings from this. Like this is the six most important things that I learned throughout this crossing. And I'm so glad that I did that in such a pure moment in my mind. And in this, into your point of like in this reflection moment of assimilating this, the, you know, this ecstatic high that I've just been through. 
And it was, you know, the first thing on there was infinite love that I wrote down. And that's the last chapter of my book. Because it's like, that was my most important lesson. So as I get away from it, people are like, you know, tell me about how cold it was. Tell me about how hardcore it was. Like, yes, like that's part of the storytelling. And I love telling those stories. I, of course, I put myself in these environments because I'm fascinated by them. So it's not like I want to get away from that. But let me make sure that I anchor the sort of conclusion of what I'm talking about here around my most important lesson. And then it's around like my love and compassion for my wife and Jenna. And it's about family. And it's about a lot of these other like things that I was integrating in this moment. And as things, you know, you know, I've, as I've gotten more notoriety or as I write this book or if people's others influences have come into my orbit or whatever, I can come back to this piece of writing that is pure in this moment and go, remember, Colin, this is what matters. You went out there for 54 days to go to deep dive into your body, into your soul, into your heart, into your mind. This is what you learned. And let me tell you, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't make as much money as possible. It wasn't <laughs> like, you know, try to be famous. It, I mean, and no, 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 like no, not a one piece piece of that ever, you know, in my mind. It's about the things, it's a core essence um, of living and of life, and it's having a deep bonded fabric of community. It's loving and supporting the people that you support and you love. It's, you know, leaning into the resonant power of infinite love and being in service to others. Like, um, you know, I'm certainly not the first person to come to that realization, um, but it's also great to have had that experience and that reference point as I'm assimilating those things, and also as a constant reminder, as of course, you know, you get swept away in life sometimes and you do get derailed off your own path to come back to and go oh that was the integration that's the moment remember that because that's a pure pure thing that I hold on to and it certainly has been um, a great waypoint and a great marker as I've you know sat down to write my book and sat down to um, go to make sure that I'm you know really honoring the authenticity and the beauty of that assimilation that's amazing man I love that Um, beautiful Uh, well Last couple of questions, guys. You got you got to go out and get this book, Impossible First. Colin's an absolute uh, ec- epic human. Uh, <laughs> fir- first person I've had back on the show, and I've had some pretty great folks. But I just it's been an honor, man, to sit down with you again. And I, I've been following the journeys. You know, I've uh, you know we've been friends for for a few years now. But watching you uh, on the Antarctic journey, and then watching you on the Drake, it's it's just so inspiring. I think. Yes, there's the physical feats and the physical aspects, but I, I think just sp- seeing another human push into um, the deepest aspects of themselves, push into, um, you know, potential failure and potential public failure, right? Which mm-hmm. is, I think, what keeps a lot of people, including myself, you know, I mean, as you know, I, and I've shared publicly on this podcast, you know. I had I had e- big ego conversation about even launching this podcast because you know I felt like going from like Jay Z and Beyonce on stage to like some dude in his living room you know <laughs> interviewing people felt like a massive quote unquote step down from my ego, um, but yet there was there was it was also leaning into something because it felt aligned with the truth of the now and my deep interest in in speaking with and sharing and building a community with epic humans like yourself who have who constantly take on challenges to really test their metal, test their grit, but do it in such a way that it inspires others. Mm-hmm. Not not to put others down, not to be like, I'm the best, you know, which I think is is sort of a, of a, an old narrative, but more like, what's your impossible first? Absolutely. Right? Like, how can I, and I know this is deep in your heart and deep in, in how you show up in the world, but like, how can we inspire people to 
to take on their own challenges, you know, and maybe that's that for some that's not even, you know, that may not even be a, an arduous physical journey. You know, a lot of times that journey starts, as we talked about, within. Um, but what what if, if there were, say, one or two resources, I mean, obviously the book Get Impossible First for you in terms of books. I mean, you mentioned, for example, the, the Vipassana and doing a Vipassana retreat. If there were one or two things that are like tangible, whether it be a book, experience, etc., that others can um, can take on that you that were hugely insightful for you, that you could recommend other people check out, um, what would what give give us one or two little like um, uh, waypoints in life mm-hmm. that people can use to sort of advance in their journey? That's a great question. I'm going to answer it, but I want to go back one step before what you said before, really briefly, which is. I think it is so important that we share our stories with the world. Yeah. And it, like it said, it doesn't have to be some epic, like, quote, unquote, epic, oh, this world record or this or that, some highlight reel, whatever. But when we share the human experience, me, that seven-year-old kid, you know, being inspired by the swimmer on the television, the Olympics, you know, halfway on the other side of the world in Barcelona, Spain in 1992, like, I don't get that inspiration unless NBC puts a camera on the guy doing this amazing 100 butterfly swim and the seven-year-old me gets to see that. Yeah. And so remember that, like, when you're sharing not just the highs but the lows, too, the vulnerabilities, this book that I wrote, like it is, yes, I'm successful at the end. Hey, spoiler alert, I make it across <laughs> yeah. Antarctica. But like it is about mostly fear and doubt and vulnerability and hardship and all of this. But when we share our stories, it doesn't, you know, it could be to a gajillion people on Instagram or it could be to two people in your living room. But when we share that with each other, other people are getting resonant energy and positivity from that. And I think that there has been this, like you said, this feeling of like either, oh, let me share this because I want to show everyone that I'm the best. You know, that's pretty, you know, self-serving. But also like realize that like when you share your story in your truth, when you share your truth with your community, people around you are listening, they are learning, they are absorbing, and they can also help you when you're going through hard times. And so it's that, like I said, that sort of ripple effect. So I always I always think that that is really important, and I'm grateful for all of the people, you know, alive and people's you know historic records that I've read that are a hundred years ago of that are my heroes of mine. You know, Ernest Shackleton, you know, yeah. a hero, a mentor, or whatever of mine. You know, he died a hundred years, you know, not quite a hundred years, but eighty years before I was born. But I can still learn from somebody because his story was actually shared. Um, so that that's a, sorry. I just kind of want to point that out. Cause I, it's something I'm really passionate about and I really encourage everyone to share their, their journeys. Um, but, um, in terms of the kind of resources that people can use, um, you know, there's definitely a couple of books for me that have been, you know, hugely influential in my life. Um, tons of a voracious reader throughout my life, but, um, the alchemist is yes. just something that oh, has just, you know, touched my heart deeply. And I, I used a quote of his in the, the very kind of opening page of my book, um, but before the title page, I think it's called an epigraph. Um, it says, uh, impossible is just an opinion. Um, it's a Paulo Coelho <laughs> quote. Love that. Um, but that's not a quote from The Alchemist. But The Alchemist to me is just a beautiful, beautiful allegory uh, about life. It's a quick read. I'm sure a lot of people listening have read it, but it's uh, uh, something that's been meaningful to me. Another book that's actually been 
thinking about books when you say resource, but I can go in a different direction as well if you want. But another book that was hugely impactful in my life, um, but certainly not quite as well known as Paulo Coelho, uh, is a book called The Way of the Peaceful Warrior. Uh, my mom read it aloud to me when I was nine years old, actually, a book by a guy named Dan Millman, who's a prolific author. He's written on 15 books or something like that. But I think this was his kind of first, you know, big uh, kind of breakthrough. And um, it is a, a phenomenal book um, and a book that has taught me a lot of lessons. And a book that I, as a nine-year-old boy, my mom read me aloud and I learned from um, but it's a book that I've reread uh, through a several different years and decades and, and seasons of my life and I learned something from it every single time um, that I read it so those are those are two books that have really had a, a big impact on me um, for sure yeah. love it and then one give, give us one non book that's been uh, something that you that you that people can do uh, you know, whether it be meditation, what, that, that you highly recommend for people to prepare themselves for their own impossible first? Oh, God, I, I hate to double click on it, but there's so many things that I can come to, but I really, I, I'm so passionate about the 10-day Vipassana retreat, like yeah. I really am, but I want to like, just like, I want to, I'm going to go double down and double down. Double not, down on it, Because I have five other things that I can mention, but like to me, it's so it's so impactful and it's also so accessible and that's what I love about it. Yeah. I mean, Gawenka, the original teacher um, of, of this methodology, he's certainly not the original of Vipassana. Vipassana goes back, you know, 2,000 years into, um, you know, the early days of, of Buddha, Gautama the Buddha, but it's not a religious thing. It's non-secretarian. It's available to any person. Anyone's accepted there, and it's completely free to go. You know, if you want to leave a donation afterwards, fantastic. There's no pressure to do so. Literally, it is free to go. I don't get not, I don't get like a referral code for talking about this. Um, <laughs> I am just passionate about it. And I said, people ask me a, a derivative of the question you're asking me, like, what you know, what can I do? And I'm like, I am telling you, if you live anywhere in the world, there are 250 centers around the world. There is yes. probably a center within driving distance of your house. And here's what it costs you. 10 days of your life. Yep. But you mentioned before in this podcast, you said our time is our most precious commodity. Yep. And I am telling you, 10 days might sound like a lot of time to do something. It is a minuscule amount of time compared to the net product of benefit that you're going to get across the totality of your entire life, not just from the moment of that experience, but throughout the entire life. And Jenna, who has known me, um, like I said, we've been together for 13 years. After my first Vipassana course, I went and I was profoundly moved by it. And I remember driving home um, that day. There's a center about 70 miles away from our house in Portland, Oregon. The center's in on Alaska, Washington, kind of halfway between Portland and Seattle. And I walk in the door and, you know, she's seen me through ups and downs, moments of change, these, you know, huge journeys that I've been on in Antarctica and things like that. But after my first Vipassana, it's the only time she's ever said this to me in my entire life. She looks at me and she goes, wow you've changed yeah. and for the better immediately. Um, and she's gone pack and done this multiple times herself now as we've spread that and it's been part of our life. But I would say to me, it's accessible. Anyone can do it. Take 10 days. If you want a serious ROI on your time, investment of time, energy, that is such a pure and simple. I mean, it's just an awareness practice of basically breathing and observing your body. It sounds like the most basic thing and whatever. Um, but going through the challenge of those 10 days and ultimately coming out the other side um, is just been one of the most immensely impactful things that I've ever done in my life. And I, I recommend it to any single person who can listen. So uh, let this be another I uh, love vote it. of confidence for that. So What a legacy, too, for Goenka. I mean, just to, to put something out in the world it's totally accessible to anyone um and you know the the analogy that it was shared with me because i lived in sri lanka for two years to study vipassana there well uh is the iceberg and i think it's appropriate mm -hmm. given 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 we have a great polar explorer uh and uh with us but basically 
our minds, if you look at the analogy of the mind like an iceberg, mostly we relate to that tip that's above the sea, you know? Uh, and, and our mind is oftentimes those stormy waters, which you just crossed in the Drake <laughs> Passage. But actually, I feel like with Vipassana or with meditation, the deep, deep-rooted mm-hmm. ice, which is actually beneath the sea, which is the, you know, that unconscious mind, that, that mind that you tapped into, I'm sure through Vipassana, as well as, uh, you know, in your flow states across Antarctica, is such a gift. And, and some of us never touch that space, but it's... I think it is almost our birthright, and mm-hmm. it's not everyone has the ability to to cross Antarctica, but everyone has the ability to sit um, in, in silence. So I think that's such a beautiful uh, yeah. recommendation. Yeah, I just want to say, first of all, thank you, Colin, for for coming back on the show. Uh, I want to honor and acknowledge you for how you show up in the world, for who you are as a man, in terms of just being committed to not only doing things that other deem impossible but to do it in such a way that inspires others to do the same in their own life. And I think that's a true uh, testament to your character. And I've known you for several years, uh, and I, I look forward to watching what you do next. And I look forward to the community that you build through that, through that process. Uh, everyone go out there, uh, get Impossible First, uh, incredible book, follow Colin. Where can we find you online, Colin? Yeah, social media. I'm very active uh, at Colin O'Brady, Instagram, Twitter. Um, Instagram is probably the most main platform. That's where I um, not only just share my daily musings and photography and things for my expeditions, but all my expeditions are live up there. So like I said, the Drake Passage Row, uh, you can click back and see, you know, me rowing a boat across uh, Antarctica. You'll start to see me, you know, throughout this year and through the spring of me, uh, you know, climbing Everest with Jenna and the daily turmoil of uh, ups and downs of that. And hopefully the euphoria of us standing on top the world so uh yeah come say hi on instagram um and then of course my website you know at colin o'brady it's all the stuff about my nonprofit and uh my speaking engagements and things like that and um we'll be uh touring around this book um the impossible first um definitely doing a bunch of signings and events and things like that so uh, uh posting a schedule of that pretty soon uh the book just came out a few days ago so grateful for everyone uh out there um hope you enjoy the book and uh if you if you do uh drop a line and tell me how you like it but uh more importantly just thanks for listening uh, appreciate it with love and gratitude for everyone out there thanks man last question go out there follow uh colin pick up the book uh you will not be you will not be disappointed i promise you that colin what does peak mind mean to you Hmm, peak mind i think peak mind means something i like what you just said that it's our birthright so i Sometimes people have heard my story, and I really try to make it not this way. And they say, Colin, you're a superhuman. Or what you experience, you have to go out to middle of Antarctica and experience that. Like, that is not true. We all have within us this ability to find a higher version of ourselves, to break free of either the mundane or the fear or the moment that you find yourself. There is there is a, even you might be doing great, but there is still a, a better version, a higher potential to be unlocked. And I am certain, I am certain, I've pushed my body as hard as one possibly can, I suppose or at least on the edges of as hard as one can. And what I always come back to when I learn every single time is that it's not the body, it's the mind. And uh, it's the peak mind that really controls it all. And it's a, it's a, a fabulous thing that we all have the ability to, uh, to explore. Uh, and I encourage everyone to do that in their own life. Beautiful. Yeah. Appreciate you. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, brother. Yeah. He is one of the most inspiring 
figures and has really kind of reinvigorated my desire to take on seemingly insurmountable goals and to break them down mentally and physically in a way that I can achieve them through their component parts. I love the idea of segmenting and stacking wins, breaking goals down into small bits, um, you know, maybe daily, daily goals um, that are breakdowns of monthly or yearly or even decade-long goals and celebrating the win of each of those small steps. So hopefully you can uh, approach your goals uh, with some of the mindset techniques that Colin shared in this episode. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. It means the world to me, and it also helps us grow this community and get on better guests so that you can uh, continue to enjoy Peak Mind as this community grows. If you ever have any um, feedback on guests you would love to see on the show, please hit me up on Instagram at Michael Trainer. And I always love receiving your feedback and building this community. So with that, please go out there and live your inspired life.